0: QE3 Industry Year, and I'm gonna be reading a chapter out of chapter ten out of Beyond Earth. And this is written by Um huh, Let's see who wrote it. It really doesn't say Editor Ted Solitaroff You know, I really don't know who wrote it, but it's called Beyond Earth, and it's a UFO book, so that's about all I can give you for that, but yeah. Alright, I'm going to read it now, as soon as I can find the chapter. Alright, chapter 10, case 42, the contactee. Why did they land in Ashland? They wanted to take some electricity from the power lines. How do they do this? I cannot say at this time. How is their craft operated? It works against gravity. How does it do this? I cannot say. That is not the right time or place. Transcript from hypnotic session. Condon report case 42. February thirteenth, nineteen sixty eight. In the early morning hours of December third, nineteen sixty-seven, patrolman Herbert Shermer of Ashland, Nebraska had a feeling something was wrong. Dogs howled in the December darkness. At the edge of town, a huge bull in a corral was kicking and charging the gate. Shermer stopped to make sure the gate was hold was would hold, and scanned the area with his spotlight. Then he drove on at 2.30 a.m., cruising toward the intersection of Highway 63. He saw ahead of him an object with a row of flickering lights. He thought at first it was a truck, but when he snapped on his high beams, the truck took off into the sky and disappeared. Schirmer, a 22-year-old Navy veteran whose father was was an Air Force career man, had never really thought about flying saucers but when he returned to the police station at 3 a.m., he entered the following report into the logbook. Saw a flying saucer at the junction of highways 6 and 63, believe it or not. When Shermer went home that morning, he had a bad headache and a buzzing noise in his head that kept him from sleeping. He also noticed a red welt running down the nerve cord on his neck below the left ear. Until the Condon Committee discovered 20 missing minutes in his police report and put him through time regression hypnosis, Herbert Shermer hadn't even the faintest suspicion that he was a UFO contactee. After his session with the Condon Committee in Boulder, Shermer returned to Ashland and his duties as a patrolman. Before long, he was appointed to head of the department and became the youngest police chief in the Midwest. He served for two months, then resigned because I simply was not paying attention to my job. I kept wondering what had really happened that night. My headaches were getting pretty fierce, and I was gobbling down aspirin like it was popcorn. You can't be a good policeman if you have personal problems. So I quit. Someone in Ashland suggested to Shermer that he talk with with author Eric Norman, who had written several magazines, articles, and on UFOs. Schirmer contacted Norman and told him his story. I know a lot must have happened that night, Schirmer said. It's down there somewhere in my mind. I just can't get it out. Norman made arrangements for Lauren G. Williams, a professional hypnotist, to join him and Schirmer on June 8, 1968, in Des Moines, Iowa, where once again, Schirmer was regressed back to the pre-dawn hours of December 3, 1967. What time is it? 2.30 in the morning, hmm. What's that up ahead? Something on the road. Probably a trucker with a flat tire. I'll turn on my brights. Wow, hmm. The row of lights are very bright. They're flashing. The red lights are flashing real fast. My God, what is that thing? What, it's leaving the highway and going up in the air. Hmm, that's an odd field. Nothing can land there. I'd better follow. Williams asks, where are you now? Schirmer says, I'm going up the mud road. To the field toward the lights it's very bright the lights are flashing I'll call I'll call Williams said who are you going to call Shermer says the police at Wahoo. Wahoo 408 come in wahoo Hmm. radio ain't working what happened to the engine where's my lights what is that thing Williams asked describe it for me Shermer it's a it's made of metal and shaped like a football a silverish glow around it flashing light underneath it came in over the field hung over for a minute and flickering and it's flickering on and off. It's making a whooshing sound and the lights are flickering very rapidly. Williams asks, how fast are the lights flickering? Schrammer says, Jiminy Christmas, they must be going around twice a second, at least 120 times a minute. Oh no, it can't be. What's happening? Legs shooting out underneath it, it's hard to see because it's very bright. I think there are three legs coming out, they're telescoping, one, two, now it's settling on the ground. Are you afraid? You're damn right. My hand is shaking. Why don't you start your cruiser and leave? I'm being prevented. What do you mean being prevented? Something in my mind. I want to go home. Lord, oh no, oh no. What's wrong now? They're getting out. They're coming toward the car. It can't be. Trying to draw my revolver. I am being prevented. Something in my mind. The one in front of the car is holding up an object. Stuff shoots out of it and goes all over the car. What is this stuff? What color is it? It's funny stuff, like a greenish greenish gas. My God, it can't be. Stuff all around the cruiser. Hmm, what's he doing? What do you mean? The one in front of the car. He's pulling something out of the holster. My God, he's pointing it at me. It's bright, very bright. How bright? Bright. Flash like a camera bulb, only brighter. Now it's happening. Paralyzed. Passing out. Can't remember anything. It's all black. The next thing Sherman remembered was rolling down the window of his cruiser. One of the occupants grabbed him and pressed against the side of his neck. Ooh, it hurts. I can't remember if I passed out again or not. I'm opening the door and standing up outside the cruiser. The one is looking directly into my eyes. I don't like it. He's asking me, Are you the watchman over this place? I wish he wouldn't stare at me like that. He's pointing to the power plant and asking, Is this the only source of power you have? Asked about a water reservoir I'm asking if if he's real, he squeezes my shoulder, oh Lord, I'm not dreaming. He is real. He asked if I would shoot at the spaceship. No, sir, he says, I can come aboard for a few minutes. Shermer <laughs> then walked with the occupant toward the craft on the underside. A circle opened, and a ladder descended. as he entered. Shermer noticed that both the ladder, metal, and the interior were strangely cold. Measured by our time, real time, Herbert Schirmer spent at most 15 minutes on aboard that craft. During the briefing by a crew leader, it was explained to Schirmer that as they talked, his mind was simultaneously receiving data input. He was told they do this with, with everyone they contact. and the following extracts paraphrase materials in italics. Schirmer is standing in a room about 26 feet by 20. The ceiling is about six feet high. The, lightning, the lighting comes from strips along the ceiling and, and has a reddish glow. Two triangular back chairs are facing a control panel of some type. Above the panel, fixed to the wall, is a large vision screen. There are portholes along the sides of the aircraft. The crewmen, who stand four and a half to four feet, feet tall, are wearing close-fitting silvery gray uniforms, boots, and gloves. On the left side of the chest is an emblem. A winged serpent their suits come up around their heads like a pilot's helmet on the left side of the helmet is a small antenna their heads are thin and longer than a human head the skin on their faces is gray white and nose flat the mouth merely a slit which does not move the eyes slightly slanted yet not like those of an oriental do not blink the pupils widen and narrow like a camera lens adjusting He's asking me if I would like to see some of their thing, how their things work. In my mind, I'm thinking no, because I want to go home. But something tells me to say yes. He's showing me things that look like computer machines. He pushes a button and the tapes start running. I am starting to tingle. He is punching buttons on the machine. Through my mind, somehow, he is telling me things. My mind hurts, there is something. He is speaking and he is telling me in this observation craft, with a, few of four men, with a crew of four men. Williams, is he communicating with you by voice or through the mind? It seems to be both methods. It appears they do all their own speaking through the antenna devices on their helmets. The one who is talking with me speaks with a voice with a sort of broken English. It is a very strange sounding and appears to come from deep inside rather than from his mouth. I cannot describe it. He is saying they study our languages on Earth through some sort of machine. My mind tells me that they have computers to speak any language, somehow, wherever they land. Where are they from? From a nearby galaxy. They have bases on Venus and some other planets in our galaxy. Do they have bases on Earth for their saucers? Yes, they are definitely bases in the United States. There is a base located beneath the ocean off the coast of Florida, which is a big thing. This would be used for our benefit, and theirs. There is a base in the polar region. They did not say whether it was the North or South Pole. There is other big base right off the coast of Argentina. These these buses are underground or under the water. How do their craft operate? The ship is operated through reversible, reversible electromagnetism. A crystal-like motor in the center of the ship is linked by two large columns. He said those were the reactors. Reversing magnetic and electrical energy allows them to control matter and overcome the forces of gravity. Is there any defense against UFOs? I would not even disclose that to the Air Force because they would try to destroy them, and now they are telling me their ships have been knocked out of the air by radar. Before they hit the ground, the mothership destroys them, by a built-in mechanism that blows them up and burns them. How can radar knock them out? I don't know. There's something ionized. It is a long word, which I cannot pronounce. Ionization? Yes, that's the word. What do you know about motherships? They are huge affairs, but we would call interplanetary stations. All of their headquarters operations are... Headquarters-type operations are carried out in them. They are the main observation stations, so high out in space that we cannot acknowledge them. The saucers arrive here carried by the motherships. They are then released to the bases on Earth. Both motherships and saucers use light beams to look in on anything on Earth, into any factory, home, or house. They also monitor our Earth communication systems. Aboard the ship is a disc-shaped object about six feet in diameter. This disc is used for remote-controlled reconnaissance and surveillance and transmits pictures and sound back to the vision screen. The crew leader flicks a switch and the screen comes out, revealing the outside of the craft. Two of the crew are walking back and forth like guards. They walk with a stiff military posture that reminds Shermer of men who have been in the armed service a long time. The crew leader presses another button. Three saucers of a different shape appear flying in formation against a background of stars that includes a big dipper. Schirmer is told that those warships flying in outer space. The image is has great depth and realism. Again the crew leader shifts the picture. The mother craft comes into focus, cigar shaped, very long, far above the earth. The screen goes dark. Schirmer is now given a demonstration of how electricity can be extracted from a nearby power line. He said I should look out at one of the portholes. He pushed a button. I saw an antenna-like thing move down and around to where it pointed at the power line. He must have pushed another button or something caused there is a sudden white spurt of electricity. It shot out of the electrical line and went right into the tip of the antenna. He said for me to look at the dials on this one gauge. They registered completely full, way over to the side. He said that they didn't take much electricity, but they didn't have a problem storing it, so they take it from our power lines. But they have a problem storing it, so they take it from our power lines. Later, he puts the electricity back in the power line, and the gauge went down again. Why extract small amounts of electricity from power lines? When they land, an invisible force field is thrown around the ship in a circular pattern. He said that the electromagnetic field is a defense mechanism. Did they mention anything about water? (laughs) They asked about the Lincoln City Water Reservoir, which is just down the hill. In some way, I did not understand. They draw a type of power from water. This is why we see them over rivers, lakes, and large bodies of water. How long have they been watching us? They have been observing us for a long period of time, and they think that if they slowly, slowly put out reports, and have their contacts state the truth. It will help them. They have no pattern for contacting people. It is by pure chance so that government cannot determine any patterns about them. There will be a lot more contacts. To a certain extent they want to puzzle people. They know they are being seen too frequently and they are trying to confuse the public's mind. He is telling me they want everyone to believe some in them so we will be open to their invasion and Think carefully now. Did he use the word invasion? (laughs) Yes. Then this would mean that they are operating to conquer the world. Oh, no, no, no. He used the word invasion, but meant it in a friendly way. He said it would be showing of themselves completely. It would be the showing of themselves completely. The public should consider in their minds that they should have no fear of these beings because they are not hostile. Do they tell you anything to say? Did they tell you anything to say or do before you left? Were you programmed to say something in any manner? Yes. He's looking directly into my eyes and saying, I wish you would not tell that you had been aboard this ship. You are to tell that the ship landed below in the intersection of the highways that you approached and it shot up into the air and disappeared. You will tell this and nothing more. You will not speak wisely about this night. We will return to see you two more times. The crew leader's hand on, in on, is on Shermer's shoulder. He says a word unlike any Shermer has ever heard before, then walks with him to the hatch. The two crew members, who have remained outside, climb aboard. Shermer gets back into the police cruiser. The legs on the ship retract. A reddish-orange light emanates from the underside. There is a humming noise as the ship winds up and shoots up into the sky. Patrolman Herbert Schirmer drives his cruiser back into Ashland. He arrives at the station about 3 a.m. He writes in the logbook all that he remembers of the past half hour. Saw a flying saucer at the junction of highways 6 and 63. Perhaps he hesitates a moment and then adds, believe it or not, as I was working on this chapter, I had several long telephone conversations with Eric Norman, whose real name is Warren is Smith. I told He told me that he found the landing site, an unplowed sloping field not far from the highway. There were three pointed marks where the tripod landing gear had sunk deep into the earth. Patches of grass had been swirled and twisted into odd patterns. Warren told me, as though the vegetation had been under powerful centrifugal pressure. Much of Shermer's story is in accord with current UFO speculation. The demonstration of energy being extracted from a power line coincides with the suspicious suspicion that UFOs sighted near tension wires in the Niagara Falls and New York areas might have been responsible for the, greatest, the Great Northeast blackout and other power failures that have never been explained. Sherman had told that all the ships were made from 100% pure magnesium. A piece of such magnesium, purer than any obtainable in our medical, our metallurgical processes, was recovered when a saucer reportedly crashed in September 1957 near U- Ubatuba, Brazil. The scanning disks used by the ships suggest an advanced development of our Spy in the Sky satellites. The resolution from even our primitive recording satellites is so good that during the Israeli-Arab six-day war, a picture was obtained showing the time on the Israeli captain's wristwatch. Small disks, similar to those described by Shermer, are frequently reported hovering around the atomic power stations and the Air Force bases and zipping along our highways. The emblem of a winged serpent on the crew's uniform has been featured in the legends of diverse cultures and civilizations all over the earth. The ancient god and legendary ruler of Mexico, Quetzalcoatl, feathered serpent, is said to have given men the calendar, arts, science, and government. The symbol is still used by Mexico today. It is not feasible to evaluate the information given to Sharmer. The odd discrepancies are covered by the warning of the crew leader himself to a certain extent we want to puzzle people we are trying to confuse the public's mind we want everyone to believe some in us from reading and rereading the material i get the feeling that we are being provided with a sophisticated blend part extension of our own scientific techniques part evidence that seems realistic since we are already predisposed by years of science fiction writing to expect such things, in part fantasy introduced by the phenomenon for reasons of its own. Herbert Schremer, like most of the good contactees, has been meticulously checked out medically and psychologically. His health, his family, his work background are all impeccable. As a witness, he cannot be discredited, so how can we ignore his testimony? The Schirmer story contains many of the classic features that recur in well-researched contactee reports, from bad headaches to suppressed memory. Next to the case of Barney and Betty Hill, the New Hampshire couple who, under hypnosis, accounted for several lost hours aboard a spaceship. Schirmer's is the best documented case of its kind on record. In reporting case 42, the Condon report almost the same words used by Dr. Hynek after interviewing Charlie Hickson and Pascagoula. Sorry if I said that wrong. Dr. Sprinkle expressed his opinion, the opinion that the trooper believed in the reality of the events he described. After the hypnotic session, Schirmer said, Dr. Sprinkle told me that my mind was a key to the future. For no logical reason, contactee cases have for years been taboo among ufologists. So many kooks have claimed that to have visited Venus with Montevani coming through the UFO stereo that we have tended indistinctively to reject all contactee reports as, jack, as crackpot. But the number of these startling reports is, increasingly dramatic, is increasing dramatically. Researchers like John Keel and Gorgon Creighton have speculated that there may be that 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 many Herbert Shermers living in America, Brazil, France, Russia, people who think that an ordinary UFO sighting who are actually cases of contact, and that there are hundreds of silent contactees all over the world who, wary of exposing themselves to ridicule and even doubting the reality of their experience, never tell their story to anyone. Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker thought long and hard before deciding to talk. In the strictest sense, they are not considered contactees because no communication took place, at least as far as they remember. However, we may balk at the idea occupant encounters cannot be disregarded because they are just too numerous. The late James E. MacDonald had an unusual criterion for dealing with reports that strained his credibility. He called it the soda pop factor. It was his habit to search the data for some solid nonsense bit of evidence that need not have been there, except that human beings often do normal things in the midst of traumatic situations. McDonald was prepared to dismiss the delightful contact story told by the Orfeo and Nogolki until he learned that during one meeting, Orfeo's extraterrestrial contact announced that he was thirsty, so Orfeo dashed into the cafe and bought two bottles of orange soda. For McDonald, this this moment of sanity made an otherwise incredible story somehow plausible. All through the Shermer material I kept watching for the soda pop factor. Toward the end, Warren Smith tells Shermer was tells that Shermer was totally ignorant of the UFO literature before his experience. But because elements of his story seemed to parallel aspects of the well publicized Hill case, Warren asked Shermer if he had ever heard of Barney and Betty Hill. Shimmer me for a moment, then beaming. Oh, yeah, they were those all laws in that movie. Betty and Barney. Bonnie and Clyde. The soda pop factor. Okay, so... I mean, that was a really powerful story for me because I had my own experience with contact. And basically... It's such a like messed up memory, even right now for me, like right now as I'm trying to remember it, because it seemed like it was daylight and nighttime, all in the same experience. Because I have, I mean, part of the memory, it's dark, and part of the memory is light. And I'm completely paralyzed while this is all happening. And I wonder if the daylight And nighttime thing is all part of how they want to blur our memories on what actually happened. So, yeah, I was laying in my bed. I know that much. And then I could sense there was something on the opposite side of my door. Like, like a sense that's like so terrifying. You want to get out of it. You're like, how do I get out of this? What can I do? And when you're paralyzed... You cannot move. They, like, they use some kind of force that paralyzes you so that you cannot move, okay? And it's, it's not, like, just kind of scary. It's probably the most terrifying feeling that there is that I've ever experienced. I'm even choking up thinking about it because I don't want it to happen again. But it was very real. And uh, the only thing that was going on in my life around that that i possibly thought that they could have interest in was that i began making my own language like a language just for writing i hadn't made it for speaking but it was a language that consisted of the 26 letters of the alphabet and um zero through nine all as a series of three dots arranged in a different way for each letter and it was pretty intricate but that was the only thing i could think that they wanted and that was the only thing that had moved in my room that I hadn't moved while I was under. It was the only thing I noticed when I came out of it. So, um, And when I had come out of it, I had woke up the next day, it was like I, I couldn't go right back into life after that, it like put me to sleep and out. So it's probably helped me not be able to recall it that well. So yeah, I really wanted to share that with you guys, and this is basically my first first podcast besides my introductory one, so this is the first episode. So I, I really appreciate you guys listening, and yeah, stay tuned, and have a great day. Bye.